Love what you hear? Be sure to check us out on Patreon at patreon.com slash finish the fight for exclusive episodes, insights, and even our D&D adventure. This is Spartan 117. Anyone hear me? Over. Isolate that signal. Master Chief, you mind telling me what you're doing on that ship? Sir, finishing this fight. Welcome back to Finish the Fight, a Halo podcast. I'm your host, Jesse Reiners. And I'm your host, Alex Kendall. And today's podcast is sponsored by Audible. You can check out a free audiobook at audibletrial.com slash finish the fight. And as always, before we get into the topic of today, let's go over a few updates that have been going on within Halo itself. So the first one being that, of course, like Halo Reach and Halo CE, there are rumors starting to come around that we will be getting Halo 2 and Halo 2 Anniversary flights coming to PC here very soon. Now, the other thing that we want to talk about just real quick is that there is a possibility that Infinite itself is going to to be delayed just because there is a lot of insider speculation that the Xbox Series X and the PS5 might be delayed as well. But now moving on from that, kind of not great news. Now let's get into the meat and potatoes of today, our episode number 28, which is Glasslands. Really excited about this one, honestly, doing this book. We heard a lot of good things coming into it and definitely had a lot of lore in it itself that kind of wasn't shoved down your throat. So let's talk about the book itself. Halo Glasslands is the ninth novel set in the Halo universe, written by Karen Travis. The book takes place after the events of Ghost of Onyx, picking up where Eric Nyland left off. It outlines what Halsey, Mendez, and the rest of the Spartans in the Dyson Sphere, where Onyx once was, along with the secret Oni mission to weaken the Zangheili further after the Human Covenant War. The novel questions the morality of Oni, the Spartan 2 project, and the decisions made during uncertain times of tension between former foes and allies. The book was released October 25th, 2011 through Tor Books, containing 464 pages. In 2019, though, the book would be re-released through Simon & Schuster, containing an additional 32 pages, totaling at 496 pages. And to give you a little background on Karen Travis, she is a New York Times best-selling English sci-fi writer based out of England who has written dozens of novels, short stories, essays, and more. Travis has had a number of careers leading up to her kind of becoming the sci-fi author that she is today. She was a TV and newspaper reporter, a defense correspondent, an advertising copywriter, a police media spokeswoman, and a public relations manager. She's also taught broadcast journalism and expanded young minds. And as well, she has spent some time in the Royal Navy Auxiliary Service in the Territorial Army of England. These actions, I guess, compiled together, bringing her to a culmination of where she is today, has brought her to be the sci-fi writer that she is. She would graduate from the Clarion Science Fiction and Fantasy Workshop and publish her first book, City of Pearl in 2004. This novel would be shortlisted for the John W. Campbell Memorial Award for Best Science Fiction Novel. Her work has also been nominated several times for the Philip K. Dick Award for Best Book. Travis has written books and comics for The Gears of War, G.I. Joe, Star Wars, and Batman Arkham Universes, along with having written for several video games. She also refers to herself as a news journalist at heart. So now let's move on to writing the book itself. So Karen Travis said that she was asked by, and I love how she always refers to 343 Industries as Halo, but she was asked by Halo out of the blue to write the book. 
this wasn't surprising because that's how she gets most of her writing jobs. It's just a random email saying, hey, do you want to write for this universe? Just like Star Wars, just like Gears of War. So at the time, she was at the Technicolor Sound Studios in Burbank sitting in on John DiMaggio recording Marcus Phoenix. She saw the email from Tor Books asking if she was interested in writing for Halo. So she turned to Rod Ferguson, who was at the time the Gears of War studio head, and she had asked if she would have a problem writing for Halo. He said he didn't mind, and as she put it, the rest is history. So like Bear, Travis was given complete freedom when it came to writing for the Halo universe. When 343 approached her about writing the novel, they simply told her, It's 2553. Master Chief is missing, the universe is in chaos. Go. She was also told that nothing was off limits. All 343 Industries asked was that that she would have her endgame of her first two books lead into the next game, which we all know is Halo 4, and that she couldn't go past a certain date, which was Halo 4. She would be asked to expand upon some small details that would that would matter more eventually in the games. Essentially, she was brought on to help bridge the gap between Halo 3 and 4. Travis wanted to explore the other soldiers in the Human Covenant War who weren't Spartans, specifically the ODSTs. She would look at the Cold War for inspiration for the idea of a post-war being just as dangerous as the war itself and what the intelligent branches of the government would do during this time, imagining herself in that situation that Oni was in. She still did have to work with existing characters, which she would come to examine. She would break them down and then recreate them using psychological profiling techniques. This is how Travis starts writing books. She starts with developing characters, actions, and motives, and etc. And this eventually leads to writing the plot for the novel itself. This would lead to Travis being thrilled when it came to writing about Margaret Parandosky. Travis actually does not play the games for the universe she's writing for. She says that if she were to start playing the games, she wouldn't get anything done due to her obsessive personality. I think we can all relate to that. Karen Travis was friends with many of the members of Rooster Teeth, listing them in the acknowledgments section of her book, stating she had the most fun she's ever had without being arrested or popping a vertebrae. She would also state that Frank O'Connor and Kevin Grace were always available to spitball ideas with. The cover art and title of the book would be revealed by Tor Books June 29, 2011. Cover art was created by Eddie Smith, a former Bungie concept artist. The first chapter of the book would be available on Tor Books' website September 2011, as well as an excerpt of the chapter being available in the official Xbox magazine the same month. The second chapter would be available October 12, 2011 on Halo Waypoint's website. Now, just to wrap this all up with some additional trivia, Travis has no favorite character from her book, or the trilogy itself, because she says she writes from a strict third-person point of view, so she never really has any favorite characters whatsoever. So also, Travis stated that she would have loved to have interviewed a real-life Dr. Catherine Halsey, because she did compare Dr. Halsey to Dr. Joseph Mangala, which I think is absolutely wild, considering Bungie kind of sent off Halsey being more of a nice, you know, person with a, a actual conscious but we kind of see a different halsey in this book Mm -hmm. so now let's move on to characters that we see in this story so starting with humans we have dr Catherine halsey saren osman or spartan 019 chief petty officer mendez vice admiral margaret parandosky professor evan phillips vasily beloy malcolm geffen leon Devereux, fred 104 kelly 087 Linda 058, 
Lucy B091, Naomi 010, Tom B292, Ash G099, Olivia, Mark, Lord Terrence Hood, and Mike Spencer. Now, for the Covenant, we have Jewel Imdama, Thel Vadam, Avu Med Telkam, Ray Madama, and Levu Madama. And then finally, just for AIs, we have Black Box, better known as BB. So now we know everything that we need to know about who Karen Travis is and when it came to writing the book itself. So now what we're going to do, as always, we're going to go through a light summary of the book itself to give you a better understanding of what's going on throughout the plots. There's about three going on throughout this whole book. So the book itself does start, and we are picking up right where we left off from Ghosts of Onyx. We have Catherine Halsey and Chief Mendez trying to figure out what they're going to do because they're they're inside this planet, you know, in this, this Dyson sphere, and instantly Halsey's starting to think about what's going on in the outside world because at the time that they're in there, they're still they're still convinced that there's the wars going on. She doesn't know what's happening with Master Chief with Cortana, and she even thinks about her daughter Miranda. And they're also trying to think about how they're going to survive in this Dyson sphere. They're trying to figure out: okay, is there going to be wildlife that we can eat? Is there you know is this water drinkable? Like what's going on here? So I, I like that it instantly picks back up where we left off from Ghosts of Onyx. And then afterwards, we move on to some new characters. Yeah, we jump over to actually in the future, and that'll come into play later. We're actually in 2553 now, and we are at the colony of New Lingnelli. Lingnelli? Something like that? Something like that. The Brunel system. Uh, and this is where we meet Captain Saren Osman and Professor Evan Phillips, and we see that they're meeting with a Singhealy a former Singhealy field master, Avu Med Telkam, and they're speaking to each other, and we realize they're doing an arms deal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like something you didn't really expect, because I thought they were a pr- it was a prisoner at first, how they were kind of describing the situation, but that wasn't the case at all. Yeah, and so they basically, we end up figuring out that Oni's kind of behind this, mm-hmm. and what they're doing is they're actually using these, I guess the best way to say, traced guns. Like they put this microfilm or something on it, mm-hmm. and they're basically saying, "You think that the elites are going to notice that anything's different with these weapons?" And they're like, "No, they're they're with all their profits gone, with all their scientists gone. They're just warriors. They just need stuff to fight. Yeah, they won't notice. Yeah, because we start to get this insight into like really, they have no idea what to do right now. Like mm-hmm. most of the elites are warriors, but there's no war. So it's like, what do you?" do at that point and that's when we kind of figure out that there is some kind of plot with oni to make sure that the elites don't build back up because then it kind of moves on and we start to we meet our our group of odst who come into uh, it's australia correct that's where like the unsc is is based out mm-hmm. of like, sydney at Bravo Six. Uh, S- sydney yeah and so we we meet vasily beloy malcolm geffen and leon duro so their friend had just passed and his request is you need to go to this very specific bar and you need to have a, a drink on me unfortunately when they showed up that bar was destroyed and they did see this con- uh, these construction workers clearing it out and unfortunately, the best that they could do is the construction workers did give them 
a bottle of juice. So they were able to pass that drink around, have a drink for their friend and pour one out for him and then move on. And then this is where we see Margaret Perandosky in the book for the first time. So we see Perandosky. She's with Naomi. She's with Saren Osman and she's with Phillips. And we also meet Perandosky's AI, who is Black Box, who actually just appears as literally a black box because for some reason, he's just like, I don't feel like taking on some kind of human form. So this is who I am. And I kind of like Black Box or how they refer to him as his BB because he is a little more witty, kind of like Cortana too. But I think his is just a, a little more funny. But either way, Perandosky explains to this group, who later becomes Kilo 5, she says, listen, we need to start an insurrection within Singhili culture because we cannot allow them to get back to their former glory because we never want to find ourselves in a situation that we were just in a few was a few months ago that the war had ended. So that's their mission. Basically, they're there to go behind enemy lines and cause a civil war within the Singhili but maintain the peace treaty that the Arbiter is trying to establish with humanity. So it's it's interesting. It, it, you didn't realize that this kind of thing would happen. You'd kind of think that humanity would be thrilled that we're like, awesome, we're going to be friends with these guys, and we're just going to leave them alone. But Oni has a, a much different plan. And the crew finishes up. They are awarded, whatever you want to call it. They're crewed into the UNSC Port Stanley. And before it actually heads out, they get a notification because they're, they're jumping into, they're prepping for slip space. And they're mm-hmm. like, we're prepping, we can't handle it right now. What's this message? And it's from the UNSC Aridne, and that they're having technical problems. And it requested help, because they end up jumping out, and they realize that it requested help from the insurrectionist-controlled colony of Venencia. Uh, but the colony refused to cooperate, and this is kind of where we leave off there. Lady, we do learn that Valencia does actually turn on the Aridne, and actually shoot it down. And then we jump over to Madama on St. Helios. And this is where we meet Jewel for the first time, who uh, is a former shipmaster. Uh, we're going to learn that a lot of these shipmasters who pretty much are warriors and only know war and fighting are grounded. Mm-hmm. They're kind of COVID-19 themselves right now, and there's really nothing going on, and they're all just kind of at home. The mm-hmm. war is over. We realize that the Huragaks are gone, the Prophets... Um, or the Sing Shiyum are gone, mm-hmm. and it's kind of trying to get back to life, but what do you do? Because we also learn, if you didn't know the lore already, that the Sing Shiyum have pretty much, let's call it, had rule over, had prophet prophecies mm-hmm. over uh, Saint, the Sanghili for, what was it, millennia? I think so, yeah. Correct, like correct us if we're wrong. but Millennia or two, and so this is the first time that they're quote-unquote independent mm-hmm. and they're trying to figure out what to do you know they've broken ships they have all these things that they personally can't repair because they had repairmen for it yeah they had underlings that could carry stuff yeah and we're seeing this dissidence between especially the jackals who are just now pirates again yeah they're just like we're fine we'll yeah. steal your stuff yeah now that there's like no economic interest within this covenant for them they're kind of working with the humans they're working with the elites they're working with the brutes and one thing that we also learn in this is that there are also brutes, for some reason, that are still loyal to some of the Sangheili. And, and grunts as well. They're, they're helping grunt, yes. them, like, farm on Sanghelios. Exactly. And, and this is something I don't think we really thought of whenever in Halo 3 we're seeing kind of the Great Schism start. Mm-hmm. And you see that brutes are attacking you no matter who you are. So 
it's kind of interesting to see that background story of it and to see that, yeah, I mean, after this war, people just kind of chose mm-hmm. what they were loyal to and where they're going. So a little thing here, history, getting back to it. So we are with Jewel, and he's heading out to see Lavu and to go see the Arbiter. And we're, we're learning a bit with Jewel and Lavu. Jewel is not a huge fan of the Arbiter. Mm-hmm. He still has that full resentment of, the, of humanity, still thinks of them as kind of like bugs that should be exterminated, and doesn't see the purpose of this ceasefire that Thelvadam wants to propose. Yeah, well, it's also the, the some, not some, a lot of elites still believe in the Forerunners as gods. Mm-hmm. They just, they thought the the uh, Seng Shayum were liars. They're like, okay, they they used our gods to manipulate us, but we still worship our, our, our gods, the Forerunners. So mm-hmm. there's also that debate that keeps popping up throughout this whole entire book. Yeah. And that's why they have some uh, resentment. Yeah, because it's that going back and forth. Because we're going to learn that there are different factions within here, and you, the and Oni is supporting one of them mm-hmm. to try and cause a dissonance of, let's, let's call them believers and not believers. Yeah. That's kind of where we are. People who are trying to create, you know, unite the universe, and then people that believe that the forerunners like to all be in gods, and mm-hmm. these are gifts from them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, because then Julam Dama, he he goes to this, I guess, this gathering where the Arbiter is, which I think they – don't they mention that the Arbiter is trying to not go by that name anymore? Mm-hmm. That he's trying to, sh- like, shed the San Shayum title for him, I guess? Yeah. And so he gives this giant speech to a bunch of former shipmasters and whatnot and says, listen, like – we need to be friends with humans. Yeah. Like, at the end of the day, there are good warriors. I fought beside them. wonder who he's talking about. And overall, I, I trust them. I really think that we should bring them together. I'm I'm your all, I'm the leader now, so sucks to suck. That's what's going to happen. And then I love that he straight up says, if you disagree, come try to assassinate me. And then just moves on. And isn't this where Jewel almost, like, puts his hands on a, on his his plasma pistol or something or doesn't he kind of get tempted to do it but his buddy says mm, don't do that yeah this is where we really start to see jules anger mm-hmm. and see that he's not really good at controlling it and i th- and to start this off with this book this book is written very cinematically so i think mm-hmm. this is really a scene where you could really picture in your head very well like hand on the pistol coming up and then out of frame, you see like a you know a hand grab his shoulder, like no 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 yeah don't do that. I that's not smart here and now. Yeah, I, I want to say Travis writes cinematically, and she she describes faces before or after someone says something. So mm-hmm. I think that really helps when a character says something or a character's responding to something. That really helps with visualizing what's going on. She's really good at making things visual for you. Mm-hmm. I, I will say that. So we continue on, and Jewel. Ends up returning to his keep, gets calmed down, and they, he has a talk with some of his neighbors as the – or one of the 400 monuments is destroyed. And they're kind of like, well, I mean, they're not gods, so it's whatever. You know, we're kind of moving on. But as that happens, they realize there's actually explosions and more going on in the distance. And it turns out that there's actually this devout group of monks, if you want to call them that, or like the devout Sanghili that are still worshiping the forerunner who actually retaliate and do an airstrike. Mm-hmm. And we learn that the neighbor Raylon and his brother are killed by the servants of Abiding Truth, who, going back a little bit, their leader or their contact person for the humans is Telkin. 
the mm-hmm. one that we met with earlier to do the weapons deal. Yeah. So so it's definitely we're we're starting to see this divide within Zangheli culture. So things are really starting to pick up within that short amount of time within the book. So from this then, Jewel decides that he's going to kind of learn more about this enemy elite fa- or uh Zangheli faction, the servants of abiding truth. So he ends up visiting, isn't it like a kind of a forerunner structure mm-hmm. where they're, they're they're having this meeting of all these former shipmasters? And so they're all saying, like, listen, we need to get a lot, like, we need to get our ships back and we need to fight against the Arbiter because none of us agree with this. And so, but so Telcam, the leader, is asking for volunteers. And so Fors, who is Jules' friend, says, listen, I know you want to volunteer and help try to get some of these ships back. He says, but you can't whatsoever. And in a cliche sense, he's like, okay, okay. And then the second his buddy, like, stops talking to him, he's like, I volunteer. So that's kind of like one of the things that happens. And and I like that he's also like Jewel's psychology in this. I really like how he's written because it shows a lot of uncertainty and insecurity within Jewel. And even in a situation like this where he's around a lot of decorated shipmasters and he kind of like feels awkward. And he's like trying to kind of insert himself into these situations or yeah. these conversations. Yeah, because one of the biggest things is, is Jewel is a newer shipmaster in a sense because mm-hmm. uh, a lot of these had been battle-hardened shipmasters he saw and ones that like he had seen before he'd served under. That was one of the biggest things. A lot of them he had served under. Mm-hmm. So they're older masters who are, who are getting into this and he accepts it. Telcam says, all right, let's do it. And they decide that they're going to go to the Anrar, Anrar, they're going to go to the Unrar shipyard and steal the unflinching resolve. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was a frigate that was formerly captained by one of his shipmasters, Baran. And I love this whole interlude that they have in there because they basically just go in and be like, I need that ship. And the brutes that are guarding it are just, all right. Yeah, because they're like, there's no profits to tell us that we can't get it. So yeah, what's and, and- to stop anyone from... You know, or what's to stop us from taking it? Yeah, because the brutes are like, I mean, you're a shipmaster, so yeah, I guess so. Yeah, it's it's, uh, and I thought that would go sour. Spoiler alert: it really doesn't. The only problem they have is, uh, yeah, spoiler alert. Even though we've already told you what happened, <laughs> but it's just like they're just kind of like, um, where are we going to park this thing? They kind of have that dilemma. Yeah, because they have to figure out where they're going to hide it. Yeah, and and, and they they eventually don't they hide it in the Mandama keep. Or am I am I crazy? Either at the beginning or the second time they move it, because we're going to learn that they move it a couple times to keep it not necessarily hidden, but show that it's moving and not just parked somewhere. Yeah, not just accumulating tickets. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're trying to make sure that they can like if street sweeping comes along, they can move it from left or right side of the street. They do get a few parking tickets, though, unfortunately. They do just so that they know that people are real. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So so after they leave the shipyard, we go back to the Dyson Sphere, and once again. I love being grounded in dates because coming from a book where you didn't have dates, we get lots of dates. You get lots of dates here. And as we're seeing, we're going back to the past. Mm -hmm. We're going back to 2552, back to the Dyson Sphere. And within there, you realize that this group, they split up because like you said earlier, they're trying to forage for food, figure out what's edible here, what's not, because we're learning that the rations, I think it's only like four days or five days of rations, something like that Mm -hmm. they have currently if they go on 500 calories a day. Yeah. So not much. And we're starting to see people kind of poke each other's nerves. You mm-hmm. know, it's, it's kind of starting like, to see some tension rise, and 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 that's mainly between Mendez and Halsey, and specifically their units, because mm-hmm. because yeah. we, we hear Halsey, who we know 
is a genius, but so dumb around normal people. She's been calling these Spartan threes kind of these false ones Mm -hmm. and that they're just fake and kind of like a hodgepodge together one. It's not a true Spartan. Mm -hmm. But as they continue on, they discover a forerunner tower and Mendez decides to explore it and brings Lucy along with him because mm-hmm. and they go inside and it's pretty dark and I think they they come to a room that they think is kind of like a utility room to turn the lights on right something like that something like that it, it's they have no idea what they're doing in there no they're just poking buttons like, <laughs> like I don't know because we learn later that a couple of these Spartan threes find the quote-unquote light switch yeah and power everything on but in this interim Lucy goes off on her own because she spots something moving in the shadows. Mm-hmm. And it was something bigger than these little lizards they saw. So, like, yeah. are there other people here? What What is this? Yeah, enemy she doesn't know. Yeah, because no one... It didn't really... It didn't dart, but it moved at a... Alarming pace. Alarming pace, yeah. A, a pace that make you would make you curious about it. Yeah, don't, don't ever ask me for, like, police descriptions. <laughs> yeah, they didn't dart. They just moved. So, <laughs> but, but yeah, so, so she goes after it. And she's feeling along the wall to obviously she can't see and comes up. The best way to describe it is like, they feel like it's squishy, but not. And it was. We're talking about the floor or the wall? The wall when she's like feeling through. Yeah. It's, it's it almost Cause, cause like. Currently the, the walls themselves are like the smooth, polished stone of the forerunners. Yeah. They, they described it as it could have been built yesterday. They mm-hmm. describe all these facilities as it's like this, like someone came in here and, and must be cleaning this daily. But yeah, she kind of almost just like phases through through this wall yeah because she she like felt it and it felt weird mm-hmm. i forget how she described it in the book but it felt odd so she kind of pushed against it a bit more and it like ate her that's what i do i'm like this is weird and i just poke it some more until it eats me yeah so she gets scooby dude through there and the gang <laughs> needs to find her now uh, that is actually literally the subplot of the whole Dyson Sphere thing. Is literally an part, episode yeah, part, of Scooby Doo. Part A is Scooby Doo, <laughs> minus trying to figure out who the ghost is. I mean, they still are though. Lucy went after the ghost. <laughs> True, yeah. But so Scooby's now lost, and Scooby is Lucy, and so she starts seeing some movement, and because she she ends up she discovers she's like a hangar because there's yeah. different vehicles around. Nothing mm-hmm. that she recognizes, but a lot of vehicles around, and she sees movement on uh, something. And she pulls out her gun and fires, but she says that the second she pulls that trigger, she realized she just fired on a Huragok. Oh, yeah, because I love this line in the book. There's no reason for it except to describe that it's a Huragok. She's like, it smells or, uh, it smells like farts. <sighs> What's with farts lately? It's great. Because she's like, it smells <laughs> like farts in here. It's, and I love that she even put it that Lucy didn't want it to be comical, but she couldn't help that she, all she could like smell was farts in here. <laughs> and we're trying to describe this to you. And be serious, but it's not working. But yeah, in this in this sad scene, she does shoot this Huracock, and she realizes it after it's too late when she pulls the trigger. So she basically comforts it while it's dying. Mm-hmm. And this is when we see, I think it's three other Huracock that are in the room. Yep. And automatically, they're freaking out. They're like, uh-oh, we're screwed. And and remember from Ghost of Onyx, Lucy can't speak. She, she can only kind of give gestures and whatnot. Yeah, because she went mute- after her entire team was wiped out except for Tom. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. like the, the the travesty and the chaos, it's PTSD. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, and, and they said, and they say later on in the book that she will only write down coordinates or draw a map. She won't even write things down. Like, she won't spell anything for out, out for you or nothing. So now we have this challenge of she has to convince these Huragoks 
who clearly know the lay of the land, who, you know, technological geniuses, they'll be able to understand things. We need she needs to communicate with them. She needs to figure out how to get out of this this room, this hangar that she's in and convince them that, listen, what she did was an accident and that she's she's not going to hurt them. And this starts with an exchange of like she gives them her helmet. They fudge with it a bunch. And then all of a sudden she puts it back on her head. But when she gets the helmet back and she puts it on, she says it sounds like she's not wearing one at all. She said she couldn't tell if they messed with the acoustics of the helmet itself or maybe they improved the speakers. But that's how they kind of start this relationship. And I think don't they eventually take her to this kind of glass wall and that's how they start communicating because one of the Hurgaks eventually does figure out how to write English for her. Well, it goes goes back a little bit. So in her helmet, they improved it and gave her two different channels, basically. Two different icons she didn't recognize. One was for that audio improvement. One, she tried to press buttons, move the helmet around, it wouldn't do anything. She later learns that it's an improvement to her mic system. Mm-hmm. And that's when the, she tries to commute with the Hurigak and looks around, is there dirt on the ground? Is there something I can, I can write in? Because right now they're just doing sign language mm-hmm. and they're just trying to mime some stuff and figure it out. And at one point she points to her like herself and her throat and just shakes her head no. And that's when the Hurigak leaves and comes back with this kind of murky water. Oh, yeah. It's like a nutrient paste. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's like trying to get her to eat. And she's like, I don't know how to communicate. Then they eventually make their way over to kind of like a a tablet system. He uses what he found in her helmet, all the different letters, to kind of be able to translate that onto... Oh, oh, oh. Before that, they dig through her rucksack. And she's dumping it out. She's like knocking everything out. And she realizes that... Because I think one of the Hergaks starts messing with something else. And there's a couple other things that happen. And she realizes that on her underpants... She has her name inscribed on there. Mm-hmm, yeah, because she said that's like they, they go into some detail like that's what you have to do or you will lose your underwear forever. Yeah, and like, like a pile of all the different clothes. Mm-hmm. So she like pulls it out, points at it, and then points at her and like points at it and points at her. Well, the Hurgak does a sign for his name, points at him, does a sign. And so she's like, I don't – I still don't understand that. Mm-hmm. But that's when he, he establishes a tablet system, sets it up for his cilia because remember on their tentacles, it's not just like a big – alieny pokey tentacle there's also like little fingers on it and starts typing out multiple messages that she's trying to figure out realizes she can't use the screen and that's when we learn that he is prone to drift prone to drift i still love how they're named which is just that's like if we name people how they walked like i would be low to the ground or slower than others so <laughs> wait, so humans get their name like seven years later. <laughs> Essentially, you're just baby, well, baby yeah, and child. Well, yeah, because Hergaks, they're not born, they're created. Yeah. And it was like it, the forerunners and then other Hergaks can create them. I think we learned that a little bit. Yeah, because yeah, Hergaks, if we haven't learned this already, are basically descendants from the forerunners. I think this might be the first time it's actually said. Yeah, I, I believe it is. Because later we'll learn that these Hergaks that she's talking with have never been in contact with anything outside of the Forerunners. Mm-hmm. They've actually been in this Dyson Sphere the entire time. Yeah, because they're they're waiting. They're like, okay, we're, we're waiting this whole thing out. We know there's this war going on right now, but we're going to wait until our bosses come back and say, hey, you guys are good to go. Well, it, it came to, they keep asking, like, why are you here? Did it, Why did the Shield World activate? Like, what happened? And mm-hmm. then they talk it back. Because eventually they get the machine working, they can talk back and forth. 
did the halos fire? Yeah, and they're they're asking like, is it still out there? Mm-hmm. Is this threat this is the loom- flood? Yeah, yeah. It's, um, so it, it's kind of like sad because they are waiting around for the forerunners to come get them when they don't realize. And we we do learn that time moves slower in in this hangar because eventually we learn that Lucy's been gone for days. But essentially, for her, it was hours because uh, Mendez and Halsey and all of them assume she's dehydrated. They're like, it's the first thing they event when they find her later on. Like, here's some water, and she's like, no, I'm good. But but that's jumping a little ahead. But Lucy is still trying to convince him, like, please let me out of this room. I I need to see my friends again. And so Prone is kind of having trouble deciding whether or not he should because. He does tell her, like, listen, you are the one thing I've never been able to fix. And she says, listen, my friends will be able to fix me and I can promise you that they won't hurt you because that's another one of his concerns. He's like, they like we don't like there's only three of us now. Like we we don't want to get hurt and we don't want to get killed. And she's reassuring him. She's like, as long as I'm with you, they're not going to do anything. I promise you. And then we jump back over to our we'll kind of go with Dyson Sphere crew, Oni crew. Elite crew. Mm-hmm. That's kind of yeah. where we'll stay with this because those are our three main groups we're going to be following. Mm-hmm. So we jump back to our Oni crew aboard Port Stanley. And Port Stanley has just exited slip space near New Linelli, and Osman arranges to meet with Telcam again uh, mm-hmm. to say, hey, we got more weapons for you. We got this whole deal going on. You're going to love it. And so Kilo 5, like Jesse said, the group that we're calling these guys, that's their official name. Mm-hmm. They have walked five miles. <laughs> <laughs> uh, lands in New Linelli. And they drive this warthog, hauling all these weapons over to Telcam, and they kind of decided who's going where mm-hmm. for this. And going back a little bit, this is actually where they start to tag the weapons. Mm-hmm. So before was just kind of the meeting of like the prologue of what's going on. Yeah. And now here's where we're talking about the tags. So like, hey, they don't have scientists. They won't notice them. And it'll be great because they more or less spread them through their people and through their worlds you can basically track where they're going. Mm-hmm, yeah, and, it, and, and maybe even, like, if like who they might be trading the weapons with as well. Yeah, to see, are they with the Kigyar? Is there, you know, are they with the insurrectionists at times? Mm-hmm. Is Are they trading? And we learned that basically saying healing humans are just as dumb as each other <laughs> and just, like, trying to, like, figure out what's going on and it's really everyone else is kind of controlling the ecosystem around it. They could it. just ask. They mm-hmm. could just be straightforward and ask, be like, are you trying to screw us over? And like, yeah... Are you trying to screw us over? Yeah. And then the book would be over. That would be it. The book wouldn't be as long as it is. Yeah. And then another thing that happens on the planet that I don't really remember going anywhere was as they're getting ready to leave, like things went fine. They did the deal. They're going back to their ship and they discover a human on this world. And we'll go back a little bit. So this was an old human colony Mm -hmm. that had been glassed. By the Covenant, and we're in the Glasslands right now. He said it. He said yeah. it. They talk about it. This is kind of the Glasslands area. This is almost kind of no man's zone because mm-hmm. uh, this is the outer colonies, been glassed up. They say it looks pretty because they're like, hey, I'm not on a ship anymore. I'll take any landscape. Yeah, they discover this man, this guy, this fella named Tom Muir, uh, who reveals to be the only survivor of this colony. I think he's just a raving old mad lunatic. Yeah, he's just like everyone else is dead. 
Mm-hmm. How did you survive? How are you the one person to survive? Yeah, this? they know, and at least in this book, we haven't read the other two in this trilogy. There's no real backstory. This guy, he's just like, yeah, I've been here for like 20 years or something. He's like, I just live off of the land. Does he eat glass? I don't know what he does. Yeah, I think he's just he, maybe he's a glass blower. Uh, he, 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 the whole actually trilogy is about him and his glass making business as we see it progress. Uh, the, the Covenant did kind of put him under for a while because glass is readily available. It's now. true. So he had to cut prices a bit. He had some competition grow up. <laughs> Skillshare ended up having a bunch of classes on how to blow glass. Uh, so it was, it was a whole to do. We later learn he gets offboarded, but he comes on and they kind of isolate him. He's kind of like, yeah. hey, I'm I'm with you guys. I'm a human. He well, he witnesses that deal go down, yes. and that's why Osman considered killing him. But she had stated, I think it was to Perandoski, that her first impression of her teammate, she didn't want to see him just kill an innocent man. So it wasn't so much that it was like the morality of it, but just because that this team was new, because she almost considered shooting him. Yeah, and and. This is obviously a covert op that's going on, mm-hmm. and he can report to literally anyone that shows up. I mean, is it is it just their team delivering mm-hmm. weapons? Are the Kigiar delivering? Is there an insurrectionist? Yeah. You know, who else knows about these operations that are going down? But yeah, this reminds me of like I don't know, seventies or eighties when when whoever it was, I can't remember his name, was shipping cocaine for the U.S. government, and they saw and two kids witnessed them doing this, so they they you know murdered the kids and left them be and tried to cover it up. So this, I thought this was the direction that that was going to go. That was a really bad history lesson on my part. I'm sorry. <laughs> but but so I was honestly waiting for it. But then the next scene when they say that they 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 took him, I was like, oh, thank God. It's like, because he was just, he's he's just farming glass. So that wraps up that little bit of mission. Then we go with Kilo 5 again mm-hmm. and they go to uh, Rhines, Rhines? Sure. Something like that. In order to, we learn extract an Oni agent known as Mike Spencer. He's the guy who's been behind enemy lines, I think almost the whole war, mm-hmm. if not a little bit before it. Because we learned that Oni has had all these people planted behind enemy lines, learning the different covered dialects and languages, specifically a lot of what Sanghili spoke. Mm-hmm. And they're going in to pull him out. Because I think it rhymes that is... Saying Healy controlled? I, I thought, or is it Kigyar? I know there's Kigyar there. I'm trying to figure out what the whole planet was. I know there's Kigyar. Yes, no, it, it is saying Healy controlled. Because if there were to be a firefight or anything, they don't want the elites knowing their presence there. Because we also learn at some point in the book, I'm breaking wherever we find this out. The ship itself is cloaking. Mm-hmm. So they kind of cloaked in, they're dropping in to pick him up. And the ODSTs hop out, you know, they're scanning the area. They're like, he's not here. You know, he's going to be late to this drop-off site. Because they had raided him ahead of time saying, hey, we're coming in to pull you out. And that's the worst. When you text a friend, you're like, hey, I'll be there in five minutes. And then you wait another five minutes outside. Yeah, you're like, you should have just walked outside. You knew the time it would take you. You should have known these things. He's that friend. He's that friend. But he also asks, oh, did the Admiral say he was pulling me out? And they're like, hmm. No, we're kind of doing our own thing here uh, because Lord Hood was kind of like still ruling this. So they're kind of all going above Lord Hood. We're learning that Oni is kind of shutting him out of a lot of things. Yeah, even though Lord Hood is supposed to be the top dog, we're mm-hmm. learning that he actually isn't. Yeah, he thinks he is. He's kind of the figurehead of everything. Mm-hmm. And so they're going in to pull him out. 
they reach there. They're like, where is this dude? Like, we told him what time we'd meet him at this specific coordinates. And they learn that he actually, like, pops up behind him. And they even, like, notice that he was there at all. He's like, oh, it's like, it like a mine shaft. I, that's where I lived. And they didn't notice him at all. He comes up behind him. He's like, oh, yeah, I just came out of that mine shaft. I had a little, little my little base was in there. You know, it was pretty, pretty cozy. And he has all these rucksacks with him. And they ask him, did you, did you burn it down? Like, oh, yeah, I burn it down. Some weird joke. He's like, I burn it down as if I was wearing underpants on fire. I, you know, the joke went past me in the book. <laughs> but you know what? Swinging a miss, struck out, and this moving dude, on. This dude's been living, I think he was by himself for two years, like working within this inner network of all these yeah. Kid Yar and elites and talking with people. I think it was just Kid Yar. I don't think he ever met with yeah. the elites. But getting this working and... Which I can relate being about a week into quarantine, self-quarantine now. You start going crazy. You start talking to your dogs more than you usually do. Listen, me and Meatball, we're having some <laughs> deep conversations now. Now, so as he's talking about this, we see out of the tunnels, they, they train their rifles over. And a group of six or seven Kigyar, something along those lines, mm-hmm. comes out of the same mineshaft tunnels he was just in. And I believe one's kitted with a human sniper rifle. They've got uh, some needlers, maybe some other hodgepodge in there, but mostly needlers and that sniper rifle are the big weaponry. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and don't they just try to go their separate ways? They're like, hey, like, we're like, good to see you. You got our stuff, whatever. See you later. And the Kid Yar start kind of pressing them and kind of questioning them and are basically just trying to s- stir it up for no reason. Well, they end up going to the ship. Mm-hmm. because this wasn't the main ship they were on. This is like a drop pod that they, not drop pod, but a smaller ship, not a Pelican. I don't know what it was. Mm-hmm. It's a ship. And they went down there like, this is, you know, how about we go and drop you off somewhere? We'll take take this ship. Because I think they offered, uh, the like, he's like, here's my assault rifle. Like the ODST was like, here's my assault rifle. You can take it. We're good. You can take what's in that rucksack. Here's my bag. It's basically getting mugged. Mm-hmm. And he's like, just just take it, it, it and we're gonna go. That's called a soft bugging. Yeah. It's just it's just polite, like I, I see you got that. We'll take this, we'll go, you'll be good. And it starts off that way, but mm-hmm. like I said, they start prodding around the ship more and more. They start to figure out kind of where the hatch is, and that's when it just kicks off. Yeah, because I think one of them eventually does grab is it Vaz? Grabs Vaz and Vaz does he hit him or shoot him? I he can't whips remember. around and Holds it in for a second, but it's the guy with the sniper rifle. Mm-hmm. And that's when he first starts talking. He's like, whoa, don't don't creep up on me like that. And the sniper rifle guy basically says, your stuff is ours now. And Vaz turns around, doesn't enjoy that. Eventually, the firefight does break out. And to start the firefight off, they actually radio Naomi, who's in the skies and their big bird, and says, hey, it's going to kick off. You got a little support for us. And I think they offer some aerial support through a fire strike or something. I forget what they do with that. Takes out the sniper jackal. Fight ensues. Everyone pulls out their guns. All the jackals end up dying. And they radio back to Osman and say, hey, sorry, it got hairy. And Osman, who we're telling is a great, not I want to say corrupt, tactful, inventive Oni, soon-to-be leader, says, all right, here's what you're going to do. Grab all those bodies Bring them in. We can use them to plant some evidence later. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and something that just occurred to me that I want to want to go back to. This was the beginning of the book. 
Naomi kept looking over Osman and she was super confused about something. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and so finally she realized, like, wait, I know you. And Osman, it's like, yeah, people, you know, sometimes you guys don't recognize me, but Osman actually was a Spartan washout from, she was a Spartan to washout. And she, yeah, did, her, so she was Saren back then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And she did get brought into Oni. They undid a majority of her augmentations, and, and that's where she is now. So, yeah, because she still, she never did get the skeletal. I mm-hmm. think she, she washed up before that. And that's when Perendowski came in, is like, or Perendowski, and she says, I want that one, and kind of has groomed her this entire time. Mm-hmm. Yep. And so, yeah, so that was a detail that I wanted to throw in because that's very, very important. Yes. And we're going to learn this later on that the exposure of really what the Spartans 2 were is a huge critical aspect. Mm -hmm. Uh, We're going to see it in the later books. But at one point, as this crew is getting to know each other better and be around each other a lot, even even BB gets on like a lot of the jokes. They start, you know, riffing on each other and actually caring about everyone on board, even though, you know, ODSTs don't like Spartans mm-hmm. and no one likes Oni, you know, and having spooks and stuff on board mm-hmm. and uh, having Phillips as a scientist. It was kind of all these different walks of life because he comes from civilian life. They start to really appreciate each other. Mm-hmm. And that's when Saren Osman reveals to everyone, just so you know, I was a Spartan too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, she, she reveals all this stuff and she reveals a lot of what happens because we also learn at one point that she, along with Perengowski, had access to Halsey's journal. Yep, yeah. Halsey's journal gets brought up a lot in this book. So it's one of those things that if you weren't even familiar with the journal having a physical release, you at least know that in the lore it exists. Yes, so go listen to our episode on that. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, yeah, so, so going back down to our ground forces, they bring the bodies in, they storm away because I think... Is it Vaz makes a joke? Oh, like, you know, we got to put this in the cupboard uh, next to the brutes and the jam. They're like, oh yeah, next, next. Or, to the... No, it's it's BB. He is says, it BB? He says, put it put it next to the dead brutes and the jam. And then he goes, just kidding. There's no jam. Yeah, and then I said, oh, <laughs> we do have brutes in here already. <laughs> and it's just, oh, this is this is very interesting. All right, so we picked them up back into space in our in our Corvette, and we're now six hours later. They've now exited Slipspace uh, near Venencia again in order to meet up with Destroyer Monte Casino to transfer over our Oni agent and our glassblower, mm-hmm. as he has been come to know. <laughs> but before they get their exchange going, they go and try and help the Eridine, who had been calling earlier, hey, we got some mechanical issues. But as they send out some support ships, uh, it gets decimated. It's mm-hmm. destroyed. Yeah. And so, yeah, so they realized that from the planet side, they actually shot up. So they actually had weaponry to be able to take out these ships in space. So they're learning that they are having suppliers from somewhere, whether it's scavengers, jackals, wherever, Mm -hmm. that this is happening. And so they go out and they're trying to search for survivors. But at the same time, one of the planetary delegates, leaders says, "Mm -mm. no, 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 you don't get to search for anything. Like, this is our airspace. Get out of here. So mm-hmm. they bring the ships back in. They don't find anyone. But they're like, we'll be back. We'll be back. Yeah. So we're seeing so much tension in the universe right now. Yeah. Just from we're, we're back to that pre-war insurrectionist turmoil that honestly some of these people never had to deal with. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They, they even like some of the ODST talk about like, 
Yeah, I remember learning about that when I was younger because mm-hmm. it was like Operation Desert Storm to us or something like that. Like yeah, something it was, we, it was 27, 30 years, depending on kind of where mm-hmm. you are. And, and if some of them are 35, 40, mm-hmm. like they barely know about it. Yeah, and even before that, because the Spartans are created for that specific purpose. So, mm-hmm. you know, if you're going way back, some may not know if they're fresh faces. So unfortunately, we don't deal with that. So yeah, so, so they're warned. And then eventually from the ground, they do fire an artillery cannon towards the ship. Mm-hmm. And luckily, they do have the Monte Cassino with them, who fires back, destroying the cannon. And they're like, that wasn't human. That was Covenant. So the Covenant are definitely giving supplies to these insurrectionists. Yeah. But finally, Port Stanley does meet up with Monte Cassino, and they transfer over Spencil and Mira, the glassblower, which then returns them to Earth. What will happen with them is is beyond me. Yeah, because and unfortunately, that's a pretty long way for slip space. Mm-hmm. That's going to be some time. And some may ask, what are you going to do on that ship that during that time? I wouldn't know what to do. Yeah. Would you ask that? All, all, all the time. Oh, there you go. Well, one thing they can do is they can uh, listen to some audiobooks. Oh, yeah? Yeah. And uh, today's wonderful book, podcast, whatever you want to call us, is sponsored by Audible. Uh, so, yeah. So, Audible is giving our listeners a free book today. So, boom. Get your book. Listen. I know you guys are uh, cooped up a bit. Uh, just a little bit. And this will definitely help out. Uh, so at audibletrial.com slash finish the fight, Audible is giving all of you guys a free audiobook. And that's multiple different programmings they have for it. Uh, you can pick up Glasslands, or you can pick up Thursday War coming up if you've already had that, or Primordium, or pretty much any of these books that we have coming up to be able to catch up before the podcast comes out mm-hmm. or after it. Kind of a, whatever option you have. That's our preferred method to go about this it lets us take notes mm-hmm. and listen at the same time instead of kind of crunching through a book and going through and it just makes yeah. driving easier which we don't do anymore yeah. really much we, do anymore. <laughs> we don't do anything other than this we don't do anything but this so uh <laughs> download your free audiobook at audibletrial.com slash finish the fight and again that's audibletrial.com slash finish the fight to get your free audiobook today Thank you, Audible, for sponsoring today's podcast. So then moving on, you know, after they get done listening to some of their favorite books on audiobook. Yeah, it covers everything. But yeah, so essentially, and correct me if I'm wrong, but but Phillips kind of learns through Zangheili transmissions, could be totally wrong about this, oh well, that this ship that's nearby has a Huragak on board. It's a Jirohanai ship. So they're going to try to get this Huragak because... Throughout the series, we're learning more and more how much of a commodity Hurricock are because they're they're mechanical masterminds. So they end up boarding this Jirohane ship in order to... It's not a big crew, if I'm correct, right? It's only th- a few. I think it was six or seven. I think it's like the, the same yeah. number as the uh, jackals that we fought mm-hmm. earlier. Yeah. Because I think at one point, when this firefight does ensue, I forget which OD- ODST says it, he like counts a number, and then more commodities like, your numbers are wrong. <laughs> yeah. Something like, something like that where he's just like, yeah. uh, no, you were wrong. There's more. Yeah. It, it, we do get this cool scene of like Naomi taking them out. talks about how she punches one and doesn't knock it out, but kind of like breaks its jaw or like knocks some teeth out or something. And then there's a, at one point she grabs one is like squeezing its throat, like almost breaking its neck. We get a really cool scene out of this where it's like, yeah, okay, Naomi is definitely uh, proving her worth here. Not that she didn't have to already, but yeah, I know the one thing that she does do, she breaks she breaks one of their spines, mm-hmm. and with one of them, like they take him down, they put a rifle in his mouth and just open fire, mm-hmm. and they got that from Legends. Mm-hmm. Or no, he did that in the eye though, not the mouth, the eye. 
They just know if as if, long as face stuff. It, yeah, if there's if there's some kind of opening in the face, just stick a gun in there. Mm-hmm. But afterwards, this is when they find the Huragok, and they talk about how they have to like tackle it and like make sure it doesn't get away because it sees all this go down, so it freaks out and tries to go. It tries like, to Zoidberg yeah. out of there. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and they even said, like, when they landed on top of it, it just sounded like air coming out of a balloon. It was like, it was like, it was like wheezing as it's trying to do it, but it just uh-huh. sounds like it's like a high-pitched kind of squeal. Yeah, so a lot of fart jokes and innuendo in here. But you know what? We we accept any and all fart jokes in the Halo universe. But yeah, so they, they do bring it on board, and they and they say, listen, don't let it touch anything important. Keep because, it with the main systems. Because we'll have to kill it. Because remember, we saw that it was a first strike, correct? Where that one repaired a Spartan's armor, and then they had to kill it because it's like, this guy's kind of neutral. So he just passes all this information along. So I think- Yeah, not, the, not on purpose. It's just yeah. what they do. But like, by repairing the armor and looking through systems, and uh, was it Chief's armor? I figure who they were doing, but it might have been. They Chiefs. learned about they're learning about Earth, and mm-hmm. like no one can learn about Earth, so they had to unfortunately put them down. Yeah, and so this is the same situation. I think one of the ODST just gives them the helmet and be like, "Here, just just screw with this." And so I, I like that. That's really like they're really. It's like Kevin from the Office when they tell him that there's like cookies in the kitchen. He just goes. So they're like, "Here, fix this," and they're just like, "Cool." Yeah, and they just do it. It's like that's all they really know. Mm-hmm. But then afterwards. Uh, when Osman's like, I have an idea for those bodies, this is where it comes to life, is she takes all the Kigir bodies and puts them on the Jirohanai ship. And doesn't she also put some UNSC weapons in their hands as well? Yeah, and it's a Model B or a Model A, whichever the older assault rifle was. Mm-hmm. And to act as if this was a raiding party and everyone kind of wiped each other out. And mm-hmm. they didn't put all the Kigar bodies. They put a couple as if the rest of them got away with the Huracock. Mm-hmm. As, if the, yeah. as if they figured out that, you know, they pirated the ship, figured out there was a Huracock on board because they're like, that's worth a lot of money on the black market. So, because we're going to learn what, what kind of comes of that in a minute. Yeah, that, so that's overall is is they can still maintain that truce with the elites while kind of taking their stuff. Win-win for everyone, essentially. Mm-hmm. And now we jump back to our elite squad, if you want to call them that. And we are with Jewel and Telkam. And we're at the Beckon Keep on St. Helios. And Telkam explains to Jewel that he lost contact with his Jirohani contact named Manus that was bringing a Huragak he recovered from Serene's Certainty. Piety, which is a ship that we learn our ODSTs were on mm-hmm. and our Oni people, returns... And he goes on board because he notices there's like dents and dings and the bulkhead's kind of messed up. He's Someone like, scratched the paint job. Yeah, but going back to when we were at the hangar before, we saw that a lot of these ships are beaten and battered because mm-hmm. we don't have engineers or buggers to come and fix the stuff. So they're yeah. kind of like making do. So he's like, ah, maybe it's nothing. They go on board and they discover a dead brute and they start to discover mm-hmm. more. And then finally they discover that jackal with the assault rifle and a couple more that have human weapons. And they kind of tack it up to the insurrectionists and the uh, Kigyar were working together on this possibly or it's just the Kigyar. They're trying to drum it up because yeah, yeah, because they had learned that there was Kigyar chatter coming from Venencia, which is the planet 
that we saw some of the Covenant tech that shot that ship down. Mm-hmm. And so they teched it up, kind of putting one and one together, because this goes back to, like, the brutes, they're not going to pay attention to these bullets or the broken spine. They're just going to see people dead, this body dead, it's them. Mm-hmm. You know, they don't, they don't have that... They're not like, you know, L.A. Noiring it to try and figure out what's going on. <laughs> reading the facial expressions. Yeah, reading their faces doubt. going up and down. Uh, yeah, so they find that out and they're like, okay, we need to get on this because there's two things could happen. One, the Kigyar figured out about it and are selling on the black market to make a killing. Or two, the Kigyar are getting more brave and confident and might actually challenge us. Yeah. So like neither of those options we really want but later we see that Jules suggests that they should have moved the unflinching resolve, which is that ship that has all the parking tickets right now, <laughs> to the planet where Telkin receives his weapon shipments. They're kind of put yeah. it all together because they don't... When you're running a criminal empire, you got to have outlets. Mm-hmm. you got to figure out where you're doing it. This guy wants to put them all in one, one egg basket right now. Yep. Not smart, but he's like, listen, this is getting, this is getting hairy. We got to do something. It's called offshore accounts, son. All yeah. right. You don't, you don't want to b- use one bank for Listen, all your money. You don't want your bank in Ireland, your bank in Switzerland, and your bank in the Bahamas to all come to the States because you're paying a lot of tax then. Exactly. And so as they're you know, going on about this, Telkin refuses and saying, Listen, I can't give you the name and location. I promised my contacts it would just be me. That mm-hmm. way, you know, loose lips sink spaceships. So it's better if I just know. And we'll figure this out later. Jewel's not taking that. And he says, no, 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 no. I'll just come then. We'll leave mm-hmm. the ship here, but I want to meet your contacts and know who I'm working with. And once again, Telkim says, listen, dude, it's just me or it's nothing. We can't do this. Yeah. So Telkim arranges another meeting and starts to go out. We figure out that Jewel uh, follows him mm-hmm. and follows him to New Linelli and discovers that he's actually receiving weapons with humans. Mm-hmm. Because before they're saying, oh, humans are trash. Like, we'll never get he- weapons from humans. That's ridiculous. But that's what they're doing. Yep, exactly. And, and at that point, all of a sudden he's attacked. And he mm-hmm. gets the tar beat out of him by Naomi. Like, she very swiftly just just kicks the crap out of him. And all the ODST hold him down. And he thinks he's going to die. So he's kind of embracing it. But Osman's like... No, we're going to take a prisoner this time. Mm-hmm. So they they package him up and they take him on the ship. And they even said that at one point he had like he couldn't even talk because he was like choking on blood and like his own teeth because yeah. they were break yeah, broken I think off. Naomi like slammed him or punched him. Yeah, and like just shattered teeth and I, I and I describe this scene as just like quick, just mm-hmm. like the punches flying quick and just it was like out of nowhere. He's on the ground and he's taken out. It's like American History X, like the beginning of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, getting curb stomp. <laughs> mm. <laughs> Essentially, something like that. But yeah, so so then he's like, uh, "I'm in a situation. This kind of sucks because you got to remember he has a wife who he said that I think at at one scene at one point he's like, "I'm just gonna go do this thing. I'll be back soon. Nah, not soon anymore." But, you know, now we have that that just went down. So moving on, going back to the Dyson sphere, we have this whole section that really is one of my favorite parts of the of the whole story. And so we're back on the Dyson sphere and the search for Lucy is continuing. So she's she's communicating with the Hergok right now, trying to figure out, like, let them know, like, hey, listen, please let me out of here. My friends are looking for me. And this is, I think, right around the time that she does learn that she's only been there for hours, even though she thinks that she's been in there for like four or five days, because she sees Mendez talking 
almost to himself, like, she's been gone for four days, but we're going to find her. Yeah, because to go back to when we first started exploring the Dyson Sphere, there were these little, like, canister robots that flew around. Mm -hmm. And we're learning that they were kind of sampler robots for the Huragark to be able to pull samples from organic creatures, to tell what's going on, and... Also, it's cameras, mm-hmm. so they're yeah. able to view what's going on aside. And they kind of follow them around sometimes, and then kind of don't. Mm-hmm. That's a whole little thing. Listen to it on audiobook. You'll know everything. But so it then switches to Halsey and Mendez, and Halsey starts kind of poking at Mendez. Like, listen, you should have told me about the Spartan 3s. I would have helped. And they kind of get into a little bickering match here, but it's still not bad. Like, they, they've done it a few times, but this is the more subtle one, where they kind of get in this... Like you kind of said, like Halsey's trying to do diplomacy right now, and Mendez isn't having it. Yeah, he's just getting at her and like, listen, like you know you, you wouldn't have been able to like keep your hands off this. This would have been way out of hand, and just just so many other things that like it's like let's just let's enjoy this because a little before this, we're seeing them still ration, and Halsey's kind of talking to herself and figure some stuff out. But the Spartans all come back with like they found a fish, they found more lizards and birds, and mm-hmm. like we're gonna be you know eating good tonight. So it's kind of the first time. They're really sitting together and enjoying this, but Halsey brings it up, causes this stir, and it's kind of like parents fighting after divorce, and like the Spartans choose chose mom, the Spartan threes chose dad, yeah. and they're kind of sitting there awkwardly, like not wanting to do anything, but it's going down. But yeah. as occurs, they go back over to the foreigner structure and see Lucy's coming out. Mm-hmm. They yep. have the rifles trained, like, oh, Lucy's here. And she's like, waves, and is like, thumbs up, doesn't say a word, because she can't. And they see behind her, there's more shadows and it's uh, the hergot coming out mm-hmm. and they're like oh is a hergot here and they're obviously you know don't fire on them they're friendly creatures no bomb strapped to them yeah so they start this dialogue of like oh like the hergot have been here you know what's going on mm-hmm. yeah and so i think isn't this when when mendez does have to break it to one of the hergot that the forerunners aren't coming back because i think at this point, there's a communication going on between Lucy and the Hergot because she finally does decide to start writing. And it, that's at least as far as she can go on like this like little this little tablet. And so they're, they're talking to all of them saying like, listen, we're waiting for the foreigners to come back because they're, they're off fighting this war right now. And that's when Mendez is kind of like, hey, sorry, bud, forerunners are no more. And you see one of them, one of them just goes back to the group and they kind of mourn. But moving on is that... Halsey's talking to them later on and saying, like, listen, I need you guys to send a message to my people, letting them know that we're all alive. Like, we can't stay here. And the Hergok are like, we have orders no matter what, unless it's Forerunner, unless a Forerunner comes here, we can't reach out to anyone. Like, that's just our orders. It's simple as that. And the scene starts to escalate because you see Halsey puts her hand, I guess she has a sidearm, she puts her hand on her sidearm. And starts getting closer to the Hergok and is like, you need to do this for me. And we start to see that Mendez and everyone else is like, please stop. And at one point, I think Lucy grabs her arm and is trying to pull her away. And, you know, with Halsey being the person she is, she she won't take no as an answer. But this is finally, th- this is something crazy that happens. Lucy decks her in the face, which I can only imagine how bad that hurts. And doesn't she say no a handful of times? So it's the first time she's spoken in like seven or yeah, like seven or eight years. Mm-hmm. I think she's twenty years old, and she says no, and so everyone's kind of like stunned by that. So after Lucy does that, 
Halsey takes a step outside, and that's when Mendez tries to go and talk to her. And this is where all hell breaks loose, because I think the tension that's been building between these two, they've had these subtle arguments, but they finally let it all out. And they start arguing with the morality of what they did with each other. And and it's it's been said a few times that, you know, we learned in the in Halsey's journal that Miranda Keys is actually Halsey's daughter. But it gets aired out in this argument, and he even talks about how, you know, you you couldn't, you know, your daughter wasn't going to be a perfect copy of yourself, so you you just sent her off to her father, and you made a clone of your of you know yourself. That's who Cortana is, and they really just let it all out, and it's like the things they say to each other are absolutely kind of horrible. But I mean, it's one of the things like I think it needed to be said. And eventually that's when Fred, I think, comes in and he breaks it up. He's like, this is done. This is over. And Fred's Fred's the uh, the leader there. I can't remember his rank. So Mendez just has to walk it off, essentially. But then afterwards, this is when Prone kind of sees, you know, who really is good in the group. And he approaches Lucy and he says, OK, listen, you guys like you guys can send this message after all. And so originally Prone was going to let Lucy send the message, but Lucy says, no, like, I wouldn't know what to say. So Halsey's going to do it. And so that's when Halsey barges through and she's like, okay, okay, thank you. Of course. She like, you know, fixes her hair, you know, pulls her skirt down. She's like, I'm fine. I have a black guy right now, but I'm fine. So she does end up sending that message out into space. But then Halsey does hear back from Margaret Perengoski herself. It's weird how Perengoski is kind of being cold with her, but trying to act civil. It's weird. And Halsey thinks that something's up because doesn't she also call Catherine Halsey by her name? And she's like, she never calls me by my name, but she's our ticket out of here. So I, I'm going to play nice because it is mentioned that Perengoski does know she's like, I'm pretty sure Halsey's alive somewhere. She's like, she's she's got to be over in this area where Onyx used to be. She's like, but that's not our main mission right now. Like, that's on the back burner. But then the second Halsey reaches out and is like, hey, we're still alive. Come save us. She's like, OK, we'll make our way to you. We'll go get you guys. And now jumping back forward in time, we're back to Port Stanley. And this is where Osmond checks on their St. Healy prisoner, contemplating like he was there with Telcam. Was he planted by the Arbiter? Mm-hmm. You know, who who is he? And they end up kind of trying to figure out what to do. And they go, okay, we've got this Hurragak requires adjustment. And so what we're going to do is we're going to pin him down. We're going to cattle prod him. And the Hurragak's going to go in and try and figure out more data on him. Because all mm-hmm. we know is his name. And that's about it from doing a scan on him. Yeah, it was he's like the Hurricane's gonna try to like read his armor or something yeah, to get tr- some stuff from it. Try and read his armor and see if they can't pull some some stuff, stuff. from it. The old There's stuff things. Yeah. And so they go in and this is where you know they get Phillips notifies Osmond of the St. Healy's name, whereabouts and discovers he is known by he is known by Telkin. Phillips begins interrogating him in a way that I really enjoy because it's told from Jules' point of view. Mm-hmm. And Jules, like, he just keeps showing his teeth in this weird way and arching his face up, like, smi- like smiling at him. Uh-huh. And he's like, I don't, I don't get why humans waste time burying their teeth trying to be nice. Yeah. And showing all these these different emotions with it. And through the through the what's happening with it, he discovers that this guy actually does understand Sanghealy language, even if he's talking like 
you know, a the, beaten child. Yeah, they said, yeah, it was like, or like an autistic child. They said it's almost like... The he, pronunciation? Yeah, he's 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 pronouncing things like just really weird, but enough to understand it. Yeah, because he doesn't, he doesn't have mandibles. So mm-hmm. he can't pr- pronounce certain words, but he goes, okay, I can understand what you're saying. And he does appreciate that. And they're going back and forth. And this is where he fidgets with that, that arum, right? Yeah, so, so he has an arum, which our jewel had on him and discovers it's... A little puzzle box. And this one is, was this one metal? I think so. Because a lot of the ones that they had thought about were wood. But Mm -hmm. it seems like if you're hyping a clan, you get a a better one. Mm -hmm. And it takes Sangheili months, years to try and solve these. And he solves it. He's like, yeah, we're going to like three hours, four hours. Mm -hmm. And he's like, how do you, impossible. You Mm -hmm. know, you must have cheated. So they go on about this conversation. And what we pull out of it is before he goes, he says, okay, well, we know that you're an agent for the Arbiter. You know, I want you to think over this conversation. I've got to go do some stuff. Bye. Mm-hmm. And he basically says, oh, you know what? I will think over this because if they think I'm with the Arbiter, I can use this as leverage. And Jewel notices Phillips leave because they had overheard this one word that he knew, Hood. Because mm-hmm. he had heard back on saying Helios that Hood was supposed to meet with the Arbiter because he was the shipmaster of shipmasters for the mm-hmm. humans. I love, that's what they call him. It's like, that's what like, he's the boss of the bosses. Yeah, it's great. And this is where Osman gets, was notifying them that mm-hmm. Fleet Admiral Terrence Hood is traveling to Vadam to talk with the Arbiter and that they would be his quote unquote bodyguards. Yeah. And they're like, this is perfect for us to get like a, an idea of kind of where we're going into and to do it on a quote-unquote peace mission. Isn't this kind of like some of the first time the humans have ever been on Sanghelios too? Voluntarily, yes. Volunt- yeah, that's what I said. Yeah, voluntarily. So the first time they were invited they were and ever they invited. accepted. Yeah. Yes. And so it becomes Osmond, Voss, and Phillips mm-hmm. go. And it's great because they describe Phillips as like, you know, little schoolgirl like squealing about all this uh-huh. stuff because he's actually genuinely excited about it a kid in a candy store he's yeah. just like running around touching everything like he loves it so much like yeah and so the arbiter comes to meet him uh the peace talks are like the most boring ever it's literally like hood's like oh if we're trying to ceasefire and arbiter's like oh we're trying to ceasefire okay and then he's like okay cool yeah. And I'm not even kidding. Just add two more sentences, and that was the peace talk. And I, and I love that, because even Osman talks about it. She goes, why am I here? And she's like, if this goes, you know, if this were ever to make it a history book, you know, it's going to be f- embellished and flourished and say there's parades. and But in reality, all of us here will never talk about it, because we can't. But it's yeah. really just, yeah, let's do peace. That sounds good. Mm-hmm. Um, all right, I'll see you later. But before they do leave, Thelvadam did know that one of them could speak the language. He says, uh, Phillips, right? Mm-hmm. You can speak the language. And he starts speaking in Sangheili. And he says, you know what? You need to come back and you need to check this place out. Mm-hmm. Like, you need to see our rich history, our culture. You're more than welcome. And he's, I think, besides Hood, the only one that he really acknowledged mm-hmm. and yeah. shook his hand. And he ignored Osman and, and Voss. And they went on their merry way. Yeah. So, And I remember he was, like, super excited about that. Because I think they even said that, like, even this, the Zangheili, like the idea of having a fan, they're like, oh, yeah, you kind of want them over because of how much you love their culture. Yeah, and, and this is also not only the first time that humans were there, but the first time they've ever actually been invited to come on, even say like as a tourist, mm-hmm. yeah. as someone to come see this, the landscape and everything. And and to wrap it up, the final thing is Hood then tells Selvadam, listen, thank you for allowing us here. I want to invite you as well to come see the war memorial. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, because you knew John Barton one one seven, Master Chief. Who? You know, should I give him all the names? <laughs> and we'd love it if you could if you could come and and, and honor him. And mm-hmm. he said, I would I would gladly be honored. Uh, let's do it. Yeah, and and you think all up until then because it's brought up a few times before they even brought it up. I thought this was like long time after that because i can't tell you the dates off the top of my head and i'm not gonna check them but mm-hmm. the second they, they start bringing up the void memorial i was like oh that's kind of cool they're actually tying in halo 3 to this it's not post halo 3 it's uh, almost post halo 3 yeah it's it's great and I, and I love that aspect of it that they're actually like like she did so well incorporating those little tidbits of, of details mm-hmm. of just hey here's the things that we kind of got to talk about do it mm-hmm and before they leave, the last request is, hey, if you have prisoners, please release them. And he's like, yeah, we might have some humans. I'll, I'll let you know. Mm-hmm. And he's like, if you have any saying Healy, release him. He's like, yeah, if we, I don't think we do. Yeah, but. He's, he's like, he's like, I'll check. But pal, we don't have any prisoners. The scene before that yeah, was that, a, that's, when, that's when Osmond's just like whistling in the background. Like, oh. <laughs> like, that's like one of those cartoon things where yeah. all of a sudden they just like start like, oh, look at the time. <laughs> they, uh, they just start like occupying themselves like, I got to get out of here. Yeah. So so they they take off and this is where they start to devise the plan of like, okay, this is perfect. Mm-hmm. We are going to implant you down there. You're going to gush on some beautiful Singhealy architecture and whatnot but we're going to have a cam relay hooked up to you to give us what's going on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because Phillips is going down. And Phillips, to take it back, he was just a civilian scientist who came aboard who knew, he was like one of the only in his lab who knew all the St. Healy stuff. So he was there for that. And now they're trying to put him on this covert mission, but he seems to really warm up to it. Mm-hmm. And I think his character arc was kind of like the squirrely scientist guy at the beginning where like, if something in the corner moved, he would jump and be afraid. Mm-hmm. And now he's like, oh, I'll go undercover. Yeah, yeah, Because yeah. he's a commodity and yeah. he knows it. He yeah. knows he's useful. And he's and I think he's like warmed up to having all of these kind of brothers in arms around him. Mm-hmm. He's like, I'm one of them. Like, I'll definitely do this. This is my part to help where I can. Yeah. And, and so afterwards, now we're we're jumping back to the Dyson Sphere again. Because this is where we see that Halsey and Parangoski are having another conversation, and Parangoski tells her, unfortunately, listen, Cortana and Master Chief are MIA, and, and your daughter has passed away, which I think is... Like, it just... And, I, and we see how cold but tactile she is. Because mm-hmm. we're learning from Osmond, like, oh, yeah, she does laugh. She does smile. Just not to you guys. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it, it's crazy. And then, of course, she kind of... Gets in this very quick depressive state because, like, how do you handle that? But she still has to keep her composure on the spot because she's also kind of worried about all this forerunner tech. And she's like, oh, my God, like, once they come get me, I'm going to be just buried under so much work. I will never see another person in my life. It's Mm going to be awesome. But we kind of learn, though, that Osmond's like, hey, Kilo 5, just so you know, we're going to go arrest Halsey. Mm-hmm. And so Halsey doesn't know. It. Halsey's just excited. She's like, cool, this is going to be my life now until I die. Yeah, because Osmond had been slowly but tactfully releasing some more Spartan 2 data throughout this to mm-hmm. her uh, other Oni operatives that are with her and to the ODSTs saying like, oh, what was this document I dropped that's the entire Spartan 2 program? <laughs> oh, whoops. Can you get that for me? Yeah. I'm going to use the bathroom really quick and then go take a shower and then eat my meal and then take a nap and then I'll come back and get yeah, yeah. it. Don't open that with the thumbprint I programmed in for you to look at everything. <laughs> and so she she goes on 
so this is kind of a back and forth that Jesse and I are going with with this because it's now simultaneous yeah. that we're linking up with these. Well, it's because also we also learn, and this is important, that Vaz finds out what Oni did. And he's starting to question whose side is he on, mm-hmm. and he hates Catherine Halsey for this. Well, no one, no one knew that they were child soldiers. Mm-hmm. They just knew that they were these soldiers bred for it, but whenever they're kind of connecting the dots of like, okay, you left when you were 12. And you're saying you started the program when you were six, and that's mm-hmm. when Phillips was like, oh, you went to like a naval academy. She's like, no, I was boots in the ground, like live fire. I was kidnapped. I was, like, yeah. Yeah, yeah and, they, and we start to learning about the whole cloning thing. And so this is when this starts to link up, because then we see that, you know, eventually they do land on, they, they find this Dyson sphere somehow. I, I don't remember the... Well, I, I believe Perengoski already knew about it. Or it, with Onyx, yeah. Or don't they? Don't the Hergok let them in? If yes. I'm correct, yeah. So, so to, to to track back a little bit, Halsey's like, "Listen, Hergok, you're gonna have to come with us because we're gonna just harvest your forerunner tech mm-hmm. and take it back to Earth and our people." And the Hergok's like, "Listen, <laughs> take whatever you want, but I have to stay here. Yeah. My mission is to stay here." But I'll go make a couple for you. It's <laughs> that's, like, we need a mechanic out here. I don't have any spare, but uh, I'm going to go make one for you. I'm going to go have, we're going to go have a kid. Yeah, we're going to have a kid. So so they go back and being original Huragox, it's like a, a full lineage of them. Because I think Lucy had figured out that they had been there 100,000 years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, because I think that was, uh, quote unquote, our time, mm-hmm. present day time. Yeah. But I think within the sphere and the sphere and the sphere, it's only been a couple hundred or a couple thousand. Yeah, because they actually did the math at one point, and I was mm-hmm. like, I'm going to forget that. I'm not going to pay attention to that equation. Yeah, it's it's crazy. So so they, they bring out three offspring? Best way to describe that, I guess? But, I guess, But yeah. three made Huragaks to take with them. Mm-hmm. And he says, okay, these will be specifically for you to work within that technology mm-hmm. because we need to make sure that it stays in good hands. Yeah. And so they Kilo 5 lands and at one point everyone's excited to see not only Osman but Naomi as well and there's kind of like this quick little warm welcome. Clearly Halsey, everyone in the group is like kind of giving her weird eyes uh from Kilo 5. And finally that's when Osmond is kind of you know she's kind of being a little casual but then all of a sudden she puts her hands behind her back, her legs go spread apart and then she arrests Halsey and basically is like, you have no Miranda rights. She's like, we can basically do whatever we want to you. And that's when Vaz and the other ODST go and arrest her. And I think Kelly's the only one that kind of perks up and is like, what are you doing? Like, don't you know what she's done for us? But I think Halsey kind of is like, it's okay. Like, yeah, she she's like, I knew my time would come. And it's weird because she went, it was like a flip of a switch. She was like, oh, thank God. I'm, I'm, I'm just going to do this for the rest of my life. Like all this forerunner work. And then all of a sudden she's like, wait. How did I not see this coming? Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. And to take it back a little bit, before they arrive, so the Hergox brought the Dyson Sphere back to normal space, mm-hmm. and to kind of christen the shield world, they're like, we can't call it oh, yeah. Onyx. And Mendez you know, requests Perengoski and says, how about we call the shield world Ambrose mm-hmm. for, for Kurt? You know, for, for that, that's when Halsey jumps up and says, no, 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 what if we call it Trevelyan? Because that was actually Kurt's true surname before we we took him into the program mm-hmm. yeah she's like that's that's one thing i can do for him mm-hmm. yeah she said that's like one out of a million sins that she has just atoned yeah but yeah so either way she gets arrested and she's now in the bunk and 
Or not in the bunk. Why did I say bunk? She's on a jail cell. Maybe there's a <laughs> bunk in it. I don't know. <laughs> She's on this bunk. It's, it's a literal, <laughs> like, 1920s jail cell on this ship. <laughs> but anyways, and so we see Vaz once again laying in his bed, and he's reading through all these files, and the amount of hatred that he has for Halsey is just insurmountable. And, and you know how I said that, uh, Travis compared Dr. Halsey to Joseph Mengele, and, and he says that in the book, uh, a horrible human being, go look him up on your own time, I don't even want to talk about it on the podcast, but so he makes that comparison and even says, you know, you know, if I, if someone could go and find out that they're dealing with a Hitler or a Joseph Mengele right now and shoot him in the head, why wouldn't they? Mm-hmm. So he goes to make his way to do that. He has a gun in his hand and I think it's it's BB who actually comes on the comments as you you don't want to do this. Yeah, it's it's not going to change anything. And BB even like gets in his head saying she's not the only one. Yeah, like whatever like it's, the second you shoot her someone will take her place. Yeah, well and that, she's not even the only one as that was part of the program. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because it comes up later that he talks to Mendez and is like how could you stand by and let this happen? Like you, you not only once but twice you guys did this, mm-hmm. yeah. And and how could you? So he he definitely wrestles with those morals and trying to mm-hmm. figure it out, and really sides with the Spartans on that. And mm-hmm. it's like, I, I I couldn't imagine like not knowing who my family was, not knowing what's going on with these things. Like, I hope you know that they figure this out. And I think in the end, doesn't he read Naomi's profile? Yeah, he does, and Naomi. He reads Naomi's, and I think he also read Osmond's. And Osmond has, like, I've been able to read my file for a long time. I will never read it. Mm-hmm. I don't care about my past life because it will change nothing. Well, it, it says that she'll just feel guilt. Mm-hmm. And she'll, yeah. she'll try and say, like, well, who are my parents? Like, can I actually find them? Or or, or what happens to them? Like, I would feel the guilt mm-hmm. of not yeah. being able to help them. And we even learned that there are some people that are still alive. This is a jump a little head. Who, who are, like some parents that are still alive from the kidnapped children. Mm-hmm. There are still a handful. But then we do learn after all of this that they're going to go back to Sydney to basically drop Halsey off. Yeah, they're going to go back. She's going to get uh, debriefed there. And spoiler alert, because we learned this a while ago, technically Halsey's dead. So it, it's kind of like, what's going to happen to Halsey since she's dead? Well, yeah, because she was presumed dead on reach mm-hmm. because no one knew that she got off and no one knew that any of these Spartans that are currently here had gotten off either. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it, it's kind of a weird ordeal. So shortly after... Those plans are made, and they're like, we're going to go back to Sydney. We go to Jules' perspective, and he is removed from the ship and transported onto that S.H.I.E.L.D. world, mm-hmm. which is now known as Oni Research Facility Trevelyan, uh, where he's greeted by Dr. Magnuson. Mm-hmm. And he says, you know what? You're going to be cozy. It's your new home from now on. Afterwards, you know, we kind of see Jules in trouble. So he's stuck on this facility. God knows what's going to happen to him. Now we go to the Void Memorial. And I think doesn't this – a lot of these chapters start with a quote, and I think this chapter or the chapter afterwards starts with the speech that uh, Lord Hood gives mm-hmm. at the ending of Halo 3. And we kind of see that all happen, and you know, of course everyone's kind of grieving, and a lot of people still can't really process the idea that Master Chief is dead because it's no longer the whole MIA thing. Like he's dead, and even Blue Team's like, like he was the indestructible one. Like how could this happen? And doesn't – Perrin Gosky actually walk over and like put her hand on his name and like bow her head for a second on the memorial. I- I'm pretty sure she does that with someone. I think it's 
John 117, which it's so odd because throughout this book, she's coming off very cold and calculated a lot of times. But then, like, the people that she chooses to have respect for, it's odd how she chooses and all this stuff. But overall, like, the Void Memorial does happen. Thelvadam is there. So it was really cool to see that kind of written out in the book. And it's, I think they even comment how Mendez is there and he's feeling insecure because he's in his, uh, his dress, his dress blues, his dress blues. And they said he looks good. And he was like patting his stomach. He's like, still kind of fits after all these years. But then at one point he's like fidgeting with his neck. He's like, uh, maybe not. So at the end of this memorial, Perengoski is talking to Osmond and kind of basically telling her like, guess what? You're taking over. Like I'm, she's 92, right? 92 or 93. And so she's like, listen, you're taking over. So th- that's just what it's going to be. And even at one point, Osmond's like, what if I'm not ready? She's like, I'll, I'll stay alive for a few more years then like almost casual. She's like, mm-hmm. but you're gonna, you're gonna take over. Like that's what needs to happen because they said Perengoski could have retired a long time ago. She's just doing this because she loves the power. I respect that. But after that, we move on to Halsey. And Perengoski actually goes and interrogates Halsey. And it wasn't so much of an interrogation as it was like almost an intimidation because she tells Halsey, like, listen, I've done a lot of horrible stuff. You've done a lot of horrible stuff here, too. But the reason that you're here is because you lied to me about those clones. Like, I read Mm -hmm. your journal. You said that those clones would be fine. And then I read your journal you knew that they were going to die. Like, you knew. Well, because she brought up that, like, why didn't you just use the clones for the soldiers then? Yeah, because Halsey was playing coy, and she's like, oh, I didn't know that they were going to die. And Parent Koski's like, but you're an expert in this stuff, in biology. How would you not have known? And finally calls her out and says, listen, I read the journal. I know that you knew. Like, and the fact that you lied to me, that's what crosses the line. You're lucky to be alive right now. Because going back, probably like the middle of the book, Whenever uh, Perengoski and Osmond are talking at one point, she says, you're loyal. The thing I value most is loyalty, and that's hard to find. Because Perengoski was asking, you know, how's the crew getting along? And she said, you know, this is, everyone's doing it. Like, people are talking to each other. We're trusting each other. And she goes, yeah, like, loyalty is all you have at the end of the days. Mm -hmm. So with Halsey breaking that, I think that's one of the big no-nos with Perengoski. She's like, we could have got along. I could have wiped all that under the rug. But you didn't tell me. You didn't mm-hmm. trust me, so I can't trust you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and even I think at one point she like slams down her fist and is yelling at Halsey, and Halsey's like, "Now I see why grown men are scared of this woman." At one point, Halsey tries to get up and she like puts her hand on her shoulder and like slams her down in the seat. Mm-hmm. But overall, is like, "Listen, you're technically dead, so anything you do for me is extra credit. Like mm-hmm. you're lucky to be alive." And leaves the room, and I think at one point even shows her like uh, her her deaths or shows her like a, a it's her plaque her it's plaque. her plaque next to Ackerson mm-hmm. yeah so it says she's like, like she's like who actually did die a hero even mm-hmm. if you didn't want to hear that yeah so this is your life now so you're gonna be doing stuff for me so Halsey still will be doing some work for Oni but not at her own leisure like she thought mm-hmm. and this is also a little bit before that where we do figure out that. Perengoski and Osmond are like, okay, we're going to put Phillips undercover. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, we can't do nothing with this invite from Thelvadam. We're going to put boots on the ground with you. We're going to get you in there and, you know, we're going to try and figure out what's going on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
And and when he does eventually, he don't they say they have like a it's like a cyanide shot that he would get from the radio he's carrying if he's like discovered or something. Yeah, I mean it's it's a, it's a drug cocktail that so they're gonna they're gonna put a segment of BB with him that's gonna be in his radio transmitter that at any point he doesn't have to take the cyanide pill quote unquote but BB would administer it so mm-hmm. you'd have an AI be able to monitor the situation better than a human trying to push his luck further or mm-hmm. not take it far enough yeah and also one other thing that happened whenever she said she's going to be appointed is that she Perangoski also told osmond about project infinity oh yeah we we do learn a little bit about the uh, infinity mm-hmm. so she's saying this is you know a ship that has all the tech we've been able to harvest from the forerunners it's you know she's like people kind of know about it because we couldn't hide this on the bankroll Mm-hmm. She's like, it was just yeah. way too much. But this is going to be the, one of the highest tech ships, and you're going to pretty much be in control of it when you're Admiral, mm-hmm. or you know, when you take over my position, so you need to know about it. Mm-hmm. So yeah. she had that. So now we go ahead a little bit, and now we're with Port Stanley again. So they've mm-hmm. taken off. They've, they've done their fun stuff. They've had a little drink. They're off. And we are back to Venencia. Yeah. And this is whereupon Mal and Vaz go and land on the surface in these disguises that are kind of like militiamen. They have like armor on, but it's like beaten up. And I think, is it, uh, Vaz has like a scar. So like he already blends in with like this like rough and tough group. And they're going to be picked up by their contact Spencer. Mm -hmm. So the same guy that we found in the mines. And Spencer picks him up in this kind of beaten up uh, warthog, but it's like a a civilian transport with it. And they're, they're like, oh, there's actually like law and order here. And he's like, yeah, like this planet's untouched. Like there's yeah. like cities and, and bustling. They're just assuming, I think what a lot of people think when you have an enemy and you like demean them and, and put them down, you're like, oh, they live in a hovel in a dirt road. Yeah. But it's like, no, we've been thriving. Like there's a toll booth. There's a woman in a dress. Like it's a whole thing. So they're sticking out like a sore thumb right now, like trying to look all like rough and tough. And everyone's like. I'm just wearing jeans, dude. I don't know what you're doing. Yeah. So Spencer ends up taking him to his hideout uh, in New Tyne. And I love it that like they all have like these root cellars and they mm-hmm. go in. It's his, like secret cool base as it is. And he starts to show them pictures of the insurrectionist leaders. He says some of these, you know, you may have seen. Some have been leaders for a long time. But I need you to get to know their faces. And as they are looking through these photos, Vaz just kind of stares at one and goes off and that's when mel goes down to vaz and says hey you you awake you you alive what's what's going on and and vaz comes and says i think i i think i know one of these people and they look at the tag on it and it's the same last name that they pulled from naomi's file Mm -hmm. and realizing this is actually naomi's father who's an insurrectionist leader so you're like "Uh uh-oh that's not good Uh, no he's a good guy because oni sucks (laughs) (laughs) but yeah after that realization then we move on back to phillips which by the way it became a joke in the book to call him phyllis since zangheelis can't say phillips they say phyllis because they can't make the p and the s sound so we're going back to quote-unquote phyllis but He's on the he's he's on Zing Helios. He's thriving. He he realizes that he's kind of becoming very very popular quickly because he can solve Aram puzzles within about a half hour. And all these Zing Heli just keep bringing him all of these puzzles. And, and this is after he explored everything for a while, but they keep bringing him these puzzles. And finally he solves one and he notices that this this piece of paper comes out. And so he actually reads it. 
and it's written in English, but you can tell it's really bad. And it's like, you shouldn't, you should not be here. Like something's about to go down really quickly. And so he, when he got, when he got uh, on the surface, he was assigned kind of like a guide or like a, a, just a babysitter. Yeah. And so his babysitter is like, where'd you get that one? Or he, he's like, did you, yeah, where'd you get it? And he's like, I don't know. He's like, well, that's the one the monks make. He's like, oh, can you go? Take me to the to the monks, then I, I'd like to see more of these. So he ends up ditching him. So he meets up with Telkem, and he's like, "Uh, some stuff's about to go down right now. You really shouldn't be here. Like this was probably the worst timing on Earth." So then, as this conversation's going down, an explosion happens and blinds the camera. And this is when Kilo Five realizes, like, uh, we have to get him out of there now because this civil war is is probably happening right now, probably a lot sooner than we expected. And so that's when Osman is like, uh, get the rest of the, the squad and let's go save Phillips. And that's it. That's the book. Yeah. So we're, so we're left on several cliffhangers kind of all around. Once again, that brings it back to that cinematic style I was talking about mm-hmm. where it sets it up really well. It's described really well. And it's all in that, you know, quote unquote, Hollywood cliffhanger style. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You, you know, we, we have Jewel, who's just kind of left with like these creepy scientists. Mm-hmm. We have Halsey, who's in like her bat cave, just stuck, going to be doing work forever, potentially. Mm-hmm. We figured out Naomi's father's insurrectionist. And now we've got this explosion. Tune in. For episode two of this crazy story. <laughs> so it's like, it's it's such a cool takeaway for it. I really, really yeah. like that. So yeah, that being said, let's move on now to what does this do for the lore? So A, we have a better insight into Zanghili culture. B, we also learn how awful Oni is. And that's, I think we're, we're all kind of learning that by now. Like, mm, Oni sucks. That's kind of subjective. <laughs> that's your opinion on that one. We also see what happened to some of the the Spartan washouts. We see that some of them have rise or risen in the ranks within Oni itself. Uh, we see post-human covenant war tensions between multiple factions at this point. So I think that's crazy. I put in the notes, he said nanotech. I think I forgot to mention that Naomi has Gen 7 armor or something. And they talked about how she has nanotech that that repairs its own armor, which we'll bring up on our Halo 4 episode, obviously. I just wanted to plant that in there right now. Uh, for Alex's lore stuff that Jesse misses completely, you know, showcasing, to get more into that post-Covenant human war, but to showcase the different aspects of the alien races and how they interact. And to show that we saw in previous novels, the Kigar were pirates and traitors, well, how prevalent they are and just how much goes into it. And to see really what St. Helios is Without the prophets, without mm-hmm. the Huragak, it's coming to shambles and that civil war is starting. Mm-hmm. So we're yeah. seeing those aspects. We're now seeing what really happened with a lot of the records from Halsey's journal. Like, how did that fall off happen? Uh, where are these records that Oni holds? Because Halsey said, oh, those records should have all burned up on reach mm-hmm. and she's like i'm yeah. perangowski i know literally everything perangowski son yeah. i know where everything is and i have everything so <laughs> plenty of those things have occurred with that so the, the lore has definitely shifted with it some things that quote unquote we the audience knew mm-hmm. but now a lot of people in the story know and we're seeing much more on oni's involvement and hands all across the universe mm-hmm. and and really yeah. these this terrible terrible organization is really controlling the universe itself. 
Yeah, and it's it's all for the sake of good. We're trying, whatever. So, so now let's move on to the reception of the book. So fans were eager to revisit Halsey, Mendez, and the rest of the Spartans left inside the Dyson Sphere after the release of Ghost of Onyx once Glasslands was released. Fans and reviewers alike would praise the book for its storytelling and insight into the post-human covenant relations with the humans and the Zangheili. Travis had not only tenure with sci-fi writing, but writing in established universes and even those owned by Microsoft, giving her advantage to writing this first novel for the trilogy. With this, she was able to tell a story set in a timeline many fans were familiar with, along with giving fans two more novels to look forward to and anticipations and speculations about the plot for Halo 4 and how her novels would tie into them. Let's go over some scores that I could find on the interwebs. Amazon users would give it a 4.2 out of 5. Barnes & Noble would give it a 4.3 out of 5. Goodreads would give it a 4.1 out of 5. Fantasy Book Review would give it a little bit of a low 7.2 out of 10. And 94% of Google users liked the book. And for release versions, you have the paperback, hardback, and audiobook. Pretty simple, pretty straightforward. Now, as always, this is the time where we uh, let our hair down and we say, okay, what did we think of the book? So Alex, as always, want to start us off? Yeah, it was good. And that's it. Thanks for thanks for listening to the Final Halo podcast. It was good. It was it was definitely a time coming to figure out what happened with that Dyson Sphere because that's really the first time we get that sci-fi techiness of the Forerunners. Mm-hmm. We have slip space. We have plenty of other stuff, but it's like you're in a different universe now. That's in a bubble. That's this, and you know, trying to figure out what Kurt really died for. And so, getting that aspect is is really awesome, mm-hmm. and advancing the story of new characters that. We're coming to love, to see what really happened to some of the washouts. Like we said, now Spartans basically run Oni. Spartans are later going to also run the UNSC, but we'll get to that. It's really cool to see those aspects come together. Not only that, to really see that the Sanghelian Sanghelios is really not much different than humanity. Mm-hmm. And everyone's fighting for those Hurgox. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Everyone needs them. I definitely liked this book. I mean, it was a long book. It was. It's super long. There's a lot of information in there. And it was nice compared to Cryptum. I mean, sorry, like, we weren't fans of Cryptum. So how this was told, I liked a lot better. And there was a lot of lore to be learned, but it was given into you in digestible bites. Well, and entertaining bites, too. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. I, Cryptum was, was dry, in my opinion. So it was, it was pretty tough. Mm-hmm. And it it comes back to, we're back in the universe that we know. Mm-hmm. We're back to characters that we know. And we're following this timeline. We're getting more on Perengoski. We're getting more on Oni itself, on these relations with Thelvadam and these other elites that are there. So I think that's definitely a huge aspect of what really drew me to it. And not only that, the writing style was so good. Mm-hmm. Travis is a great writer. Travis is a fantastic writer and put her skills to work in this. You know, just given a couple things, like you said, she gets an email, I'm not playing the games, read some <laughs> of the books, got an idea on it. All right, cool. I can, I can write that. Yeah, so I think, as again, she has she has an awesome insight into what's going on, and even just, as I said earlier, how she describes how people's faces look before they say something or how they react to something, I think is awesome. I think she really captures that, and I mean, so many times, she made me imagine the faces. I just know that, like, as Alex and I, exp- like, explained, Kilo 5 does a lot in this 
book in in this short amount of time it it is a little hard to keep up with sometimes because it's like okay they're on this mission now they're on this mission now they're doing this now they're doing that now they're on zang helios for like literally five minutes now they're at the void memorial now they're doing this insurrection thing but but as you had said it it was told very cinematically and i think this is one of the the first books that we've covered where a majority of it had a cinematic feel it just didn't have small cinematic segments throughout it so Again, I did like this book. I think Travis is a great writer. I am looking forward to the next two books. The next one's uh, uh, Thursday War. Mm -hmm. So I'm looking forward to that. I'm really excited to see where the story goes because it's like, oh, God, is Phillips going to die? What is going on with this this Singhili revolution? Uh, I've played Spartan Up, so I kind of have an idea about Julam Dama, spoiler alert, but... What's going to happen to that guy? So it's all really interesting to see. Like, when is Osmond finally going to take over? I am for sure looking forward to the next book. Yeah. That being said, that was Halo Glasslands. It's really cool to go back to the Onyx storyline. I was really excited to see where that was going to go. And I'm excited to see where the next two books take us. But with that, I think I I will say because of how long and how much information is in this book that I, I sometimes find unnecessary I'm going to give this one an 8 or an 8.5 out of 10. So that means Jesse doesn't like to read. No, I don't. That's uh, why it, was, I it was not that long, in my opinion, but that's okay. Like 500 pages almost. Yeah. I mean, it's an average book I read, but that's okay. That, not for me. I'm a short story man. Uh, it's understandable. Yeah, I don't know. It was good. I would probably give it seven bowls of sludgy, a foreigner food, divided by an infighting of... Mom and dad, but plus a lot of social distancing (laughs) out of surviving this outbreak. (laughs) Uh, Too close to home right now. Come on. But again, that was Glasslands. If you want to follow us, you can always find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. And then, of course, be sure to join our Discord. I know people say that they have trouble finding it. It is in the description in whatever platform you're listening to this on right now, Spotify or anything like that. Speaking of platforms, though, you can find us on any and all podcast platforms, whether it's iTunes, whether it's Google Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, uh, Stitcher, and YouTube as well. Anything you can think of, we're there. And as always, we want to thank those uh, who've been supporting us through this, those patrons. We really, really appreciate it. If you haven't heard of already, we have a Patreon where you can listen to post shows bonus episodes a little bit early we have polls to vote on what our next bonus episode is going to be we have a private discord we have plenty of different outlets that are just really awesome that we really appreciate all those who've been a part of it and it's one of the major ways you can support us uh if you can we really appreciate it if not no worries but want to thank those right now uh angry canadian baby z brent oni fourteen twelve two four nine four bb charles zitter cowan fong feliciano Duststorm, Francis, Grant Dillon, Harvey Chong, James, Yervasi, Colonel Panic, Tactics, Dragonfire, Mr. Choff, Pasquale Rosco, Skyjack, and ZZ Slipaway. Thank you guys so much for the support, and uh, we're going to continue doing this. You guys are the MVPs, and this would not be possible without you. And with that, I'm your host, Jesse Reiners. And I'm your host, Alex Kendall. And thank you for tuning in to Finish the Fight, a Halo podcast. I think we're just getting started.